0: Today we're talking to Michael Whelan. Michael's written a book called The Other Country about his son's autism. He gave up his job to care for his son and made a discovery not only about his son but about his family and himself along the way. His son Charlie is now an independent, confident and happy 12-year-old who is travelling to Sydney with his soccer team and will start at a mainstream high school next year. Michael held an academic position in the music department at Queensland University of Technology, where he taught courses in songwriting and film music. He left university teaching in 2002 to commence his new career as a home parent. He lives in Brisbane with his wife Helen and their two sons, Charlie and Thomas. Thanks for talking to us today, Michael.
1: You're very welcome.
0: Now, your book is obviously about a subject that's very close to your heart. Why did you decide to write it?
1: I think the main reason I decided to write it was that I felt that there were a number of uh, families that we had come into contact with, all of whom who'd shared our experiences. And yet, they were very private experiences. No one in the broader community, I don't think, understood the intensity and uh, range of activities that parents of a child with autism spectrum disorder go through yeah. and i think that for that reason of trying to trying to just sort of draw out into into the public arena a little bit more what that journey of parenting is like because with the uh, incredible increase in diagnosis over the last 10 years for children with that disorder yeah. it's it's not an isolated section of the community anymore it's sort of one in 160 children born in australia at the moment are diagnosed with that disorder yeah. so um I think it was sort of just trying to bring out um, into the public what had been a private experience.
0: And when did it occur to you, you know, I'd really like to put this down in writing, and initially was it you'd like to share the story or was it initially you just want to write something down and see what happens?
1: Um, I think a part of it was that therapeutic urge to write something down, Mm. but another part of it was um, wanting to, to share information because information as a currency is very uh, valuable for parents of children with any number of medical disorders because getting the information that you need is quite critical. So part of it was simply wanting to contribute in that way. And another one was that sort of what you're referring to was that sort of therapeutic urge to to set in motion a a process of getting all this out so I can expel it in some way.
0: Mm. And how did you feel about the response the book has received so far and what has the response been?
1: The response has been really good. It's um, uh, Interestingly, uh, our conversation is the first conversation where we're, I, uh, we're a little bit so far, and I imagine later on, we're talking a little bit more about writing. Mm. Um, almost all of the um, coverage so far has been about the subject matter of autism because it's such a, it strikes a chord uh, across the broad community to such a level because there are so many families who know someone or have a relative or have a child in their family with this disorder. Mm. Um, so the response in that level has been fantastic. Response, um, uh, in, so from an interest point of view, has been great. Response also in terms of the comments that people are making is really good in the sense that there's just been very, you know, warm uh, sharing of experiences, people saying, you know, I've, I've experienced something similar or because the, and because the book's not just about autism spectrum disorder, it's about that feeling of dislocation of of when you're part of a mainstream community and all of a sudden you get relocated to this world of disabilities. Mm. The the fracture and shock of that experience and finding yourself in a different place, in a in a different community, is something that a lot of people feel for any number of reasons, whether it's through illness or culture or any any number of experiences that make you feel like you're for some reason out of your control, uh, being relocated to a different community, and I think that, that that that's also comments that I've received.
0: Right. And apart from uh, your own personal experience, obviously, did you do a great deal of other kind of research before you sat down to write the book?
1: We, in terms of the there, there were two sort of there was a number of research lines to pursue in in writing the book. One of them was simply remembering all of the facts and getting them in the right order. And then a lot of the information that... Uh, so that was the first stage of it. Um, and that was through diaries and through conversations with family members and uh, and just going through clinic notes from various specialist appointments and those sorts of things to establish a timeline and a narrative line. Mm. The other was a lot of the information that I felt I knew anecdotally, but I didn't really have any hard evidence to support it. So it was a case of going through on specific topics, whether it was... You know, specific information about um, uh, research into um, uh, sibling prevalence, or or to do with vaccine injury, or to do with um, dietary uh, details, things like that, where I knew that we'd been, uh, I'd i heard on a grapevine, or I'd been influenced by certain things I'd read. And I just had to go back and do a little bit more of sort of whether it was um, database research or or um, Popular journal research, or or um, or simply going back through textbooks in the house, and just sort of mm. making sure that when I referred and quoted to things, I was getting my story straight. So there were the two primary areas of research, I suppose.
0: And was that quite a laborious exercise?
1: It. Uh it could have been some some bits of it where there was one particular thing I wanted to refer to, and I in some cases couldn't track it down, and I would have to delete it yeah. um, because I just couldn't validate the the observation or the claim I was making. But mm. um, but no, I didn't find it very um, uh, in, I suppose draining or demanding. Part of that reason is that. Uh, and this may come up later in our conversation, is that I enrolled in a PhD in creative writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, pro- this book was my main creative project for that um, course. And there was a certain amount of scaffold, research scaffold in place, and I was able to draw upon a number of methodologies and resources within the university to be able to allow me to access and sort of categorise and pool a lot of the information I wanted to refer to.
0: So tell us why you w- enrolled in the creative writing degree.
1: I had a long background of working in the arts. I've worked as a musician and, and, and worked in theatre as a, a... I had done some writing in theatre and worked as a, an actor and director and to certain different differing degrees, but I was teaching as an academic in the university in a music faculty. Mm. And um, even though I had done some professional writing, in order to put together a, a narrative of this nature I, I wanted to do it well and I thought I'd, I'd really benefit from some professional right or mentoring and, uh, and so I, I contacted a, a different university and approached a specific um, staff member whose work I was interested in and I felt they might be able to offer me some useful um, uh, guidance through this process and, uh, and that really it was first case in point was I just wanted access to good writers and their experiences to help um, as a touchstone for my uh, journey through this process. Mm.
0: Now, obviously, that your son's diagnosis changed your life. Has the book then again changed your life further?
1: Well, look, not really. I mean, it's it's only been out a month at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are, I suppose... Uh, transgressive aspects of writing that that have changed my life in the sense that your personal experiences are now a little bit more public. Mm. But in a way, it's only through when when there's media conversations and when I'm doing radio interviews or TV interviews about the book, that's when it's at its most changed or most transformed in the sense that I'm in some sort of public arena talking about uh, my personal life. But the book itself, um, because it's sort of a private experience reading a book, and I'm, I'm I'm not doing a one-person show about my life or something. Mm -hmm. It's it's less – it it really hasn't changed much. But uh, the writing of it, the process, I feel I've learned a lot about just being able to um, uh, put together really basic aspects of grammar that I thought that I knew – uh, and the storytelling, getting a narrative in shape and and, uh, and finding the flow of it, those sorts of things, they've, they've been life-changing in a sense that I've noticed a, a really dramatic improvement in my own ability to express myself in written form.
0: Mm-hmm. And are you then pursuing writing further?
1: I am, actually, yes. I've started another book, uh, this time a sort of semi-fictional piece. Great. Uh, and uh, And I've sort of got some first chapters of that finished and off to my agent and She's been making comment on it. So, um, so yeah, so I definitely have, and I'm, I thoroughly enjoy the process now. And I, unlike some of the other art experiences that I've been involved with, whether it was music or theatre, which are largely collaborative, and you you, you get caught up in the, the life cycles of other people's lives and deadlines and those sorts of things, writing is very private, and, uh, and I've found that it incredibly... Um, uh, invigorating to to pursue a creative outlet where I can choose the time that I engage in it and not, uh, as opposed to the lengthy rehearsal processes of theatre and the demands of you know everyone else's deadlines as opposed to my own. Mm. So yes, I, I am, and that's what I'm enjoying about writing. I think is the fact that I can I can control. Um, when I do it and under what terms.
0: Now you quit your job actually to become your son's primary caregiver, which is usually a role, stereotypically assigned to women. How, why did you decide to do this and how did you deal with this change?
1: Well, I think the, the main reason for it was that my wife had been primary carer at home for the first four or five years after our both of our young boys were born, and particularly through this very, very difficult post-diagnosis and Uh, in the middle of the therapeutic intervention process. So more than anything, she was about to combust from stress from from four or five years of of dealing with that front on. Mm -hmm. And so she went back to the workplace and I simply left work so that I could spend time at home taking up the baton and continuing that work. And so I think that that was the primary reason. It wasn't in some ways it was difficult leaving work because I'd been an academic for thirteen years and so I was sort of a part of the furniture at the university and so any of those sort of life decisions that you make that are, you know, a big change in lifestyle, that was difficult. But the decision um, to leave to knowing what I was going to felt very right. So it was only difficult in that sense of lifestyle change and what will that be like. But in terms of uh You know agonizing over is it the right decision I didn't have any of that but it was difficult leaving you know someone else sort of you know establishing the rhythms of your week and your year for you with the workplace Mm -hmm. then trying to to be the person who constructs the rhythm of a day with two children who don't know what rhythms of the day are supposed to be you know and trying to sort of get any sense of that I I did find that very difficult in the for the first year or two I I didn't come to it naturally but I stuck at it, you know, and now I feel quite comfortable in the role and the kids were at school most of the time and, you know, and, uh, and so I sort of helped my wife with her business a little bit part-time during the day. But, uh, but uh, I wasn't one of the people that just sort of fell into home parenting as though, oh, this is fantastic. This is what I was meant to do. It was, it was quite tough.
0: Mm. And on top of that, you had to get into the rhythm of writing. How did you sort of incorporate that in? Was that easy?
1: Uh, in some ways, because I, I worked... Basically, during school terms when kids were at school that that part of it finding the time and the place was was quite simple um, but in the early stages of writing, that was very difficult, partly because i wasn't I, I lacked a bit of confidence with the process uh, but, and also because the things I was writing about were very difficult emotionally and so I mm. think that that um, knowing that when I was going to sit down and work for two or three hours, I was going to be revisiting some very difficult Uh, memories and emotional experiences, that that was sort of, I I did a lot of uh, procrastination there and I would find it very easy to go and distract myself with other things. So the first half of the book, which is more uh, sort of recounts the darker times of of diagnosis and um, of uh, therapeutic um, interventions... It uh, was difficult to write simply because I think at the emotional level and also getting used to it. So it, it, the first half of the book took me about two years to write. Mm. But the second half of the book, which is, is much more, um, I suppose, joyful and also much more uh, uplifting and positive from our point of view, from the narrative point of view, I, I wrote in about three months. So, and a part of that was getting used to the, the routine of writing. Uh, and the discipline of writing and the other part of it was just getting through that part of the narrative that I was finding it difficult to address.
0: And when you write about your life, you really do lay yourself bare. Was that something that was hard to do at first? Did you lay it all out there, or did you you know feel tempted to hold bits back and would and did that work?
1: Um, I was I did find it difficult initially. Partly because I thought, oh, no one will want to know this. No one <laughs> will want to know how that affected me. Yeah. I, I was sort of trying to just list facts of this happened and then this happened. And, yes. and as I gave a draft chapter to various people, particularly you know, uh, writing mentors at uni, to have a look at, they would go, yeah, that's. I've got a sense of the story, but what? How did that impact on you? What did? How did that? What happened in the emotional, in the social, in the personal world? That and where? What's that story? And so. I was reluctant initially, not so much because of the personal, exposing personal feelings. I just sort of felt a bit vain writing about myself and what <laughs> I was thinking. For thinking that people would think, Christ, you know, that's what's, what's he writing that stuff for? You know, to give the facts. <laughs> so I'm a bit of a fact person, so I think I wanted to just write facts. And so being more reflective in the writing process didn't come naturally. But after a while, I sort of got into the swing of it.
0: Because that's in fact what people do relate to, the actual personal element, isn't it? Not just the facts.
1: And that's what people have responded to, you know, within the feedback I've got so far. It's been really lovely.
0: Mm. Now, in the book, you mentioned that you researched and tried all kinds of therapies and resources to assist Charlie, yet beforehand, you weren't that keen on alternative or holistic medicine. What are your thoughts on that now?
1: It was more that I was we just never experienced them. I didn't really have an opinion either way. Uh-huh. I, and uh, we'd been, in a, you know, brought up in Australia in a sort of a mainstream, middle-class family. We'd just been to GPs to get your, you know, whenever you get the flu, you go and get antibiotics. Whenever you get, um, you know, uh, I don't know, whatever ailment that sort of goes through the, the suburb or the community, you know, we'd only ever engaged with fairly traditional um, general practice doctors mm. and when we when Charlie was diagnosed with autism we then became involved you know with for example occupational therapists and psychologists and um, uh, physiotherapists and speech pathologists and there were a whole range of allied health professions and each of them brought their own expertise to it we sort of started getting ahead around what these allied health professions were then People in the parent groups we started talking to were saying, you know, there are dietary things you can do, and so once you move into things away from allied health, then and then into diet, there are sort of you get into these disciplines then that are less scientifically or evidence based, and more built on where various cultural traditions or or, uh, lifestyle traditions and those sorts of things, and so whether they were um, uh, practices that were um, you know, are not necessarily drawn from let's say Buddhism or or from um, you know from uh, New Age therapies or or kinesiology or or, or homeopathy and things like that. We, we you know someone would say look it's worth a try and so we we adopted the attitude rather than bring any specific preconceptions to that process was just to go look there could be a benefit there certainly won't be a harm so if it does no harm let's give it a go and so we basically ventured into every possible um uh, holistic or 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 alternative health scenario that we could locate just to see if there were benefits and in some there were you know and they were minute but they were there you know so so i suppose uh from a philosophical point of view the big the big jump for us was embrace everything do no harm and try everything
0: Great approach, I think.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, you talk about that sense of displacement and sort of disconnectedness in a, in, in a sense. And you gave the, this book the title "The Other Country." I understand after reading a poem by Emily Pearl Kingsley called "Welcome to Holland," because Emily found herself in Holland instead of Italy after raising a child with a disability. So, which country, so to speak, do you feel like you're in these days? You know, in 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 the world you used to be in, or, or or still in another world.
1: Well, we with the diagnosis of our child with a disability, we it's like having a visa stamped to the world of disabilities, and it's a parallel community that exists, but it's largely invisible. And we'd never. I mean, there are there are parent groups, there are play groups, there are therapy providers respite carers community groups charities all these organizations who are focused on delivering services to people and their families with disabilities and all of a sudden we became shareholders in that community stakeholders we were we were accessing services we were meeting other people we were going on to play groups where there were kids with mobility impairment with with um, all these other disorders that were so different to our child's, but it was like there was a line in the sand of there's a mainstream society and then there's everyone else. And uh, and as we increasingly started to meet parents of children with autism and we started to socialise with them and we'd had our own parties, you know, where the kids could, where, because they were behaviourally different and, and because they had different language and, you and, um, know, uh, going to a public park, other kids might look at them. You tended to socialise more privately and more discreetly. And I think that that sense of difference drove that the title uh, because that was the, one of the most profound experiences for us was that reloc- that dislocation to a new place. We were still living in the same street, but all of a sudden we were part of a different culture. And over the last 10 years, we have migrated a long way back to mainstream uh Society, in a sense, that our boy Charlie now is, for the most part, indistinguishable from other kids. He plays sports in a, in a local soccer club. You know, he goes to the movies with his friends. Sometimes he rides his bike up to the shop on weekends and gets stuff. We're pretty normal in inverted commas now, mm. but part of us never wants to leave that community because the, the centering, the the, the purpose, the unity. Uh, uh, that we found in in that community is something we've never experienced before. And so, while we've been striving with all of our therapeutic interventions with our child to head back to mainstream society, part of us will never leave that other community because it is so full of purpose, meaning, and hope for us. Mm. And uh, and no matter whether people have migrated on that journey with us, or where they've stayed, whether they where they are, it doesn't matter. You know, that's that's our new It's like our new ethnicity, Mm. you know, and that's where we sort of spend our time, I suppose.
0: And when you are in mainstream society and you tell people about your son's autism, how do people generally respond these days?
1: Well, we don't, in a way, we don't really, you know, we don't broadcast that fact in in, in a way that we might have. If his behaviour was going to be, draw attention to himself, we might let people know, look, you know, Charlie's got this and, you know... Uh, we might uh, want to cushion that experience for other people so that they might be more tolerant or something. But really, we don't tend to do that anymore. Um, and and at the times when we were doing that, I think mostly people just sort of go, oh, okay, you know, and, and look startled mm. but, uh, but caring and think, okay, well, I'll make accommodations. I don't really want, know what they will be. But it's amazing over the last 10 years since that diagnosis and with that increasing number of children with the diagnosis, so many people are aware now of the disorder and of how it um, uh, requires um, just some subtle modifications in the way that you interact. Mm. Um, in but ten years ago, it was very different. You know, people had no idea and, and really didn't know how to respond.
0: Mm. Now, these days you are writing uh, and you're writing your next book. Can you describe to us your typical working day when you're writing?
1: Oh, my typical working day when I am writing mm. is uh, I always try and leave myself something from the last time I've written that makes it easy for me to start. Oh. So I'll try and not to write myself out. Uh, I'll try and sort of, if I'm going to finish working, I'll finish on a new idea or a new chapter or a new Paragraph, uh, and just put two or three dot points down of remember this, this, and this. Do that, that, and that. So that when I sit down at the computer to start, there's a little bit of something on the page for me. That's a good technique. Yeah, so just as a writing habit, um, I find that I just sort of when I sit down, I've got a starting point, and even though I may not pursue it, I can be productive within a few minutes. And uh, and even though I might then ditch that train of thought, it just gets me productive and working straight up um i think another other uh, habits really are uh, are trying to um to work in two-hour blocks and i find that if i can get two hours done i feel like i've achieved something and uh and if i can do two two-hour blocks in a day I'm pretty much spent. I, I think if I spend more than that, I start waffling. Mm-hmm. And uh, and if I have got time on my hands and I feel like it, I might just you know I might work in dot point after that, or just sort of sketch form, just as opposed to trying to write prose or trying to trying to write in a structured way. Mm. But two two hour sittings in a day. If I've done two two hour sittings, I'm ready for a drink. <laughs>
0: And if you do your two two-hour sittings where you're actually doing straight writing, the rest of the time, do you find you're in, a, in your writing world, in your head, or you're thinking about your ideas, or, or do you switch off?
1: I, I sometimes am a bit vague and distant thinking about things that I'm wanting to write down, but, but when you've got two young children, outside of that time of writing, having two young children and a you know, big family life and um, my wife, Helen, with her busy business, you know, there's always, it, it's very rare to have the luxury of sort of just um, letting, letting ideas gestate and formulate in your mind as you might normally. Yeah. So I tend to sort of quarantine writing for sitting down and working. But there's always a part of your brain, you know, in those downtime moments where you're just mulling over ideas. But, uh, but I think two small children take it out of you and, uh, and that, yeah. they sort of – they take up your headspace.
0: Sure. And finally, what advice would you give to other people who are thinking about writing a book based on a particular life experience of theirs?
1: I, I found I, – I'd always, uh, as a hobby person, as a hobby reader – always read biographies and autobiographies and particularly autobiographies because I find the way that people represent themselves really interesting mm. and uh, uh, from either in terms of the voice of their character that they produce, their their narrative voice, or just in terms of how they construct structure in their stories. So I find that reading widely and not just particularly in one style like, um, you know, whether they're literary autobiographies or, or celebrity or just political or, you know, uh, reading in a wide range of styles is um, is important as a preparation. And then also, I think, in preparing to write, just sitting down and and, and uh, almost like, as though if you were a project manager, just writing out in, in dot form what your aims are, what the content might be, where you intend to be by a certain time and just sort of mapping things out a little bit, not in too much detail because I I, I don't want to sort of, uh, you know, override your creative impulse to take you in different directions, but giving yourself a few skeletal uh, or structural um, bits of scaffold to think I'm going to do this first, that this is my main aim for this part of it and that's what I want to get out of it and that's what I want to communicate. I think that just that basic structural stuff can be really, really effective in helping you become productive as a writer and then I think once you've done that, coming back later on and tweaking with that or throwing it out can be fine but it really, the worst thing can be sitting down and being inactive Mm. and trying to find that strategy for, for putting first words down and I'm a great believer in giving myself as a person who finds distraction very easy and who's a great procrastinator, if I just give myself basic boundaries uh, and a little bit of a starting point, I tend to be very productive very quickly. And I think that that's a a great trait with my minimum experience as a writer is productivity, uh, being productive and and writing is is very important. Mm,
0: Great advice. And on that note, thank you very much for your time today, Michael.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Or visit me on my personal website, www.valeriekoo.com. That's Valerie Koo, K-H-O-O com. Thank you for listening.